Okay, let's read scripture. We want to hear from God's word. That's why we're here, to hear from him and respond to him. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 18. Hebrews 12, 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words may the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you, verse 22 says, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Then verse 26. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. May God bless the reading of his word. So last Sunday, I felt like I unintentionally caused division in our church, okay? So last Sunday, at the beginning of the service, I asked everyone to pick either the mountains or the ocean, going to the mountains or going to the beach. What I did not anticipate was almost an exact 50-50 split in our church between picking I would rather go to, to the mountains or I would rather go to the beach. And so in light of causing unnecessary division, I thought this morning I would try to reunify our church, okay? So you again are going to get two options, okay? You're going to get to pick two options, and we're going to use tacos this morning, okay, as our go-to. So you get to pick two options this morning. You get to pick yes to tacos or no to tacos, okay? All right? Those, those, are, those are your options, all right? So, again, you only get to vote once, okay? You only get to vote once here. How many of you vote yes to tacos? How many of you vote no to tacos? Remember, there will be a prayer and repentance time at the end where you can... Uh, <laughs> You can confess that before the Lord, but I, I am good to see that our church is back together. Right? We're, we're back. We can't decide mountains or, or ocean, but tacos. Like, we, we've got that. This morning, I want to show you how tacos can be a picture of participating in the kingdom of God. Now, we're going to get to that. We're going to get to that a little bit later. We're going to put that out in front of you. We're going to get there. But first, let's back up and remember last week, okay? Last week... We talked about the end of Hebrews 12. There's a picture of two mountains. There's Mount Sinai, which refers to the Old Covenant. It's a place of fear, chaos, darkness. The people are separated from the presence of God. That's the image that goes with that first mountain. 
But there was a second mountain, Zion, Z-I-O-N, that second mountain, which is a place of peace and joy and drawing near to the presence of God. And so you have the picture of these two mountains. And in Christ, we are being taken to that second mountain, to Mount Zion. That's where we're going. Peace, joy, love, grace, nearness to God. We're going that direction. Now in verses 26 through 29, there's going to be that same type of contrast that's set up, but it's not two mountains, it's two kingdoms, or sometimes people will talk about two ages, but really two kingdoms is probably the clearest way to talk about this. Let me lay this out for you, and then we're going to look at the verses, okay? So again, we have a beautiful chart, we love charts, we got another chart up here for, for this week, but we have these two, these two kingdoms. Kingdom number one, age number one, it is earthly, material, it's able to be shaken or changed or messed up in some way. It, it, it's temporary. In some places in the Bible, you hear it called this present age, or sometimes even this present evil age or present dark age. It's, it's this world right here. Kingdom number two is heavenly. It's unshakable. If you want a $100 word to go with it this morning that I think describes it, it's incorruptible. That's the word I would put in front of you that describes the second kingdom. It is incorruptible. It's unshakable. It's eternal. This is the age to come. And so you have these two different kingdoms that are going to set up two different hopes that we have, two different ways of living and how we respond to God's work in our lives. So look at verse 26, and I want you to see these show up in the verses, and then we'll kind of talk about how to apply this reality. Verse 26, let's see this actually emerge from God's word. It says there at the beginning of 26, At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, dot, dot, dot. And we'll get to what he's promised. But, but feel when you're reading your Bible and you see something like, at that time, but now, it's this very clear contrast. At, at that time is looking back. If you guys can back up one screen just for me so I can see that contrast. At that time is this idea of the old covenant, it's looking back to Mount Sinai. It's looking back to that place of fear. And what happened there, his voice shook the earth. When the voice of God thunders from heaven, it's this sense of fear, this sense of shaking that he's bringing judgment. He's causing these things to become clear. I realized after the series of earthquakes last week in Oklahoma, this probably wasn't the, uh, this is kind of an intense imagery to use, but this idea that God is able to shake things in this way. But now, pointing forward to the new covenant, to this reality that we live in in Christ, he is promised. And that word promised is meant to speak of certainty and stability. So kingdom number one, shakeable. It has a lot of uncertainty involved with it. Kingdom number two is stable. It's a kingdom of promise. It's a kingdom of eternity. Now, what is being promised? Look, look at the next verse. You're going to see, well, middle of verse 26, you're going to see. What is being promised in this second kingdom? The promise comes from the book of Haggai in the Old Testament, which we'll actually study later in 2024, but it comes from Haggai. And the promise is, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This prophecy from the Old Testament, where God is saying at Mount Sinai, in the very beginning of your Bible, I shook the earth. 
But here's a promise that once more I will shake all things, and it will not just be a mountain down here. It is going to be all created things. This is a little bit of a confusing phrase, and so if you go to verse 27, the author actually explains the phrase to you in verse 27. What's he, what are you talking about? Well, you go to verse 27, and it says this phrase that I've just drawn, this phrase, this verse, this phrase, yet once more, what does it indicate? It indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, material things, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. So what's the prophecy from Haggai? The prophecy from Haggai is one day God will establish his eternal, never-ending, never-changing, perfect kingdom. He will establish that. And it will include the removal of everything that is temporary, everything that is corruptible, everything that has been damaged by disease and sin, all of that will be taken away and God's kingdom will be established. Because here's what we know. How quickly can your life be shaken up in this world? It takes one phone call for everything that you considered sure and certain just to be shaken up. Your health? One day you feel like things are going well, the next day, it feels like everything is shaking. Everything is uncertain. Everything is unstable. You think about jobs and money. One day things are going well. The next day it feels like everything is shaking. Everything's uncertain. It takes one phone call. It takes one instance. You think about relationships in your life, friendships, those things that you feel like this is going to last, and then it feels like it's not lasting. It feels like it's being broken down. Something is going wrong with it. And we feel the worry and fear that comes from living in a world that's shakable. And here's this promise that we serve a God whose character never changes. We serve a God whose kingdom will never end. We serve a God whose purposes and plans are good, and they are certain. And so this first kingdom that is shakable, it's hard to find any trust. It's dominated by fear and worry, but there is a kingdom to come that is dominated by peace and hope and you can trust him, and you can worship him. Now the question is, how do I have that hope when I live in a world where things are still shaken? And I want to put this image in front of you, this, this picture up here. We use this phrasing called already, not yet. Sometimes people will talk about living in the overlap of the ages, and I know it feels like a little bit of a complicated drawing, but this is New Testament theology, when you think about reading your Bible, if we understand this idea right here, it'll help you understand so many things that are going on in the world, so many things that are going on in the Bible. The red line that goes from left to right, or if you're colorblind, struggle to see that, down at the bottom, the shakable present age, this material created world, created by God, it's a good world, but it's been corrupted by sin, it's temporary, it's prone to being shaken up, things change, things happen. You have that shakable present age. But then Jesus came. You have the cross there. And with Jesus' coming, did the kingdom of God come at that time? Well, it's a trick question, but we're going to say yes, it did. The kingdom of God, when Jesus came, he said the kingdom of God is at hand. He is bringing God's eternal kingdom into the world. But he brings the kingdom of God into the world, and yet the shakable present age still exists. How do I know that? Because we live in a world where family members get sick, and we live in a world where jobs go away, 
and we live in a world where friendships are broken, and we live in a world where the things that we think are going to be stable are not stable. We live in a world where we see the brokenness and pain and, and realities of this shakable present age, even while at the same time we raise our hands in worship and say, God, I believe your kingdom has come, and I believe that victory came through Jesus, and I trust you. And so we live in this time, this already not yet. Not yet have we seen God's eternal, unshakable kingdom established, but already we believe that Jesus is good and that he brought victory through the cross and the resurrection. And so what we have to do as the people of God is figure out how do you live in the overlap? How do you live with that trust and that faith even when things are shaken up? So I'm trying to think through how to describe this and what these verses say this morning. So I've invited our sixth grade Sunday school class, all right, to come help me. So you guys come up here. These guys are going to help me explain this a little bit this morning. All right, marker person. Do you have the marker? All right, good job. Hope you guys remember what order. Go ahead and swing the, you can swing the line around. You can stand behind the, uh, the TV if you have to. Okay, so what we're trying to think through is how to understand what it means to live in this kind of world. So first person up, grab the marker. We'll have to do this pretty quickly or we'll be here forever and you don't want to do that. All right, we have an arrow pointing up. Good job, man. What, what happens when we go away from that? It leads away from God, and it leads to what? It leads to brokenness. That's a serious X. Nice job. But thankfully there's hope, or we wouldn't be here this morning. There's hope. Where does the hope lead? The hope leads to the cross, to Jesus. When we experience God's work in our life, where does it lead us? It leads us back up to God. Okay, let's think about that cross. You guys help us think about the cross. What do we understand about God's work in our life through the cross? So come show us, Lindy. Draw your arrow. What do we know? We know that God has worked in our world. He's created all things. What do we do, Boston, in response to that? We respond up to God. Then what happens as a result of that? God brings us into his work. And Sammy, what do we do last? We've experienced that, so we go out and we share that with others and return it to the marker person. Good job, guys. Well done. If you guys, if you guys can draw that, you can share with other people all these things we're talking about this morning about how God works in your life. Now, you guys did so well, I'm going to pay you for your work, all right? All right. There you go. Oh, did I forget to pay you? Sorry, marker person. There you go. There you go. There you go. All right, you guys go grab your stuff. Keep taking notes in the sermon. You guys are doing well. Doing well. Doing well. Ran out of dollar bills, but four quarters is actually better than a dollar bill, I think. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> you get that. You're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you for saying thank you. Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17, your Bible, you can look at it later if you want to or make a reference, just a note. Luke chapter 17, 
Jesus tells a story there about how he's making his way from Samaria and Galilee region down toward Jerusalem. And as he's going along, he encounters ten lepers uh, who are sick, dealing with leprosy. And as he encounters those lepers, he heals them, or he sends them away to be cleansed. And they go away. Of those ten that were healed, do you know how many came back to say thanks for what happened? One. Eleven sixth graders got a dollar for helping me on stage. How many came back to tell me thanks? One. Now, parents, before you get mad, we set that up, okay? So uh, <laughs> we, we practiced before, before the sermon that that was going to happen because the kids were like, I cannot go back to my seat without, without saying thank you. Like, do you know how much trouble I will be if I go back to my seat and don't say thank you? And so uh, we're like, it's okay. I'll tell your parents from stage what just happened. You're not going to be in trouble, all right? It's going gonna, it's gonna to be okay. I wanted you to think about this as a parent, though. If your kid ends up on stage and they get a dollar from the pastor and they don't say thanks What's that going to make you feel inside? You're like, wait, I'm, we're better than that. Like, we're, we know to say thank you in our family. You got one dollar for saying thanks. Think about what God has done in our lives. Think about what he has given us. This unshakable kingdom. This hope and salvation and forgiveness. All of these things he has poured into our lives. He's given us these things. What are we supposed to do in response Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28. When you experience God's unshakable kingdom, what do we do in response to that kingdom? Verse 28 says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. When we experience God's work in our lives, even think about this little arrow down, we experience God's work in our life, we experience God's work in our life, what do we do? We respond back to him in gratitude because of all that he has done in our lives. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no change, no shadow of turning. Every good thing that you have in your life comes from above, comes from God. The things that he has given us of salvation, the things he has given us of family and friends, the things he has given us of tacos, like all of these good gifts that he's given us, he has given us and we respond with gratitude. And it's not just based on your circumstances. Our ultimate gratitude is based on the fact that there is an unshakable kingdom to come. And so when everything in your life feels unstable and uncertain, when everything around you seems to be shaking, you can say to God, thank you that what I see right now is not the end of the story. Thank you that there is eternity to come. Thank you that one day you will eradicate evil and you will make all things right. Thank you that one day all tears and pain and death will be taken away and your kingdom will be established forever. God, thank you for that. In the ancient world, there was an author who said that lack of gratitude is worse than murder and stealing. <laughs> so to not show gratitude was worse than murdering someone or stealing. Just trying to make this point of how important it is to show gratitude. When we think about God's work in our lives, how does he often show his work in our lives? It's through other people. 
And so when we experience God's work in our life through another person, what do we want to do in, respond to, in response to that person? We want to show gratitude. We want to be thankful people. Christians should be marked by their thankfulness, by their gratitude. Because we realize that the opposite of gratitude is often this type of pride that goes with our lives. The person who struggles to say thanks and the person who struggles to say sorry is someone who's battling with pride. Teenagers, you're going to find this in your lives over and over and over again. People that struggle to say thank you and people that struggle to say I'm sorry, it's an indication that we're battling pride. If you're the kind of person who deals with bitterness or you just kind of have an overall negative viewpoint on life, gratitude is a powerful spiritual weapon. Gratitude is what God has given us to battle back against those negativity, that, that bitterness that takes over our lives when we think about this idea of, of receiving thanks from someone, man, it's just life-giving when someone says thank you. I know my family probably gets tired of this, but when someone tells me thank you, I often respond with thanks for saying thanks, <laughs> like uh, just over and over, and then they respond with thanks for saying thanks for saying thanks, and then I'm back with thanks for saying thanks for saying thanks for saying thanks, and then it kind of, the, you know, the wheels come off at that point. But this idea that when someone says thank you, Man, it can, it can just empower you to keep going. It's life-giving. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, some of the Wednesday night kids groups left thank you note cards in my mailbox over in the office. Reading through those thank you cards, man, it feels like your heart grows three sizes that day. Like, it's just, it's empowering. It's life-giving. Like, it, it's so good to receive those type of things. It forms a bond between people when we give thanks. This is one of those areas in life where psychology and social psychology is really reflecting things we've always known to be true in the Bible because there are so many studies that are coming out to show the power of gratitude in our lives. You'll hear people even today that are not religious, could care less about church or the things of God, but they keep a gratitude journal. Uh, one of the marriage studies that's come out in the last few years has shown that one of the most powerful forms of marriage counseling, marriage therapy, is just getting couples to appreciate one another. So many marriages are taken down because of criticism or contempt, that idea of disdain, speaking down to someone, seeing someone is below you. But thankfulness, gratitude, creates this idea of mutual value, mutual appreciation. And so this idea that we want to care for one another. Now we have to think about with gratitude, it has to be authentic. There's, there's got to be a reality behind it because we live in a social media age where it's easy to post something and say, oh, thank you, Jesus. And then you're like, yeah, is that, is that accurate? Like, did that re does that represent what God's doing in my life? When we understand what God has done in our lives, what should come as a response to that? It should be gratitude. Now, here's the key. Where does gratitude lead? Look at the next verse. Where does gratitude lead? Middle of verse 28. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship. A life of gratitude leads to a life of worship. That we are people who realize everything we need, everything we have comes from God. And as a result of that, we are going to worship him. Worship is a word that has to do with devotion has to do with sacrifice and serving, that our lives are fully devoted to the Lord. One of my favorite definitions of worship comes from Louis Giglio. 
and I've kind of shortened his definition to get it on the screen and make it a little easier to grasp. Worship is our response. So remember, remember our four-arrow cross. God has worked in our lives, and we respond up to him in prayer and praise as our response personal, individually, but also corporate as a church to God for who he is and what he has done. And worship involves both our words and our actions. So it's, we worship the Lord with our words, but we also worship him with our actions. Our lives are lived in response to him. Now, what does pleasing worship look like? Well, look at the next part of that verse. So we want to offer to God pleasing, acceptable worship. Here's the key, with reverence and awe. Those two words, reverence and awe, are meant to be read together in this verse. If we have reverence for God, but we are not in awe of how great he is, that reverence will turn into legalism. Because when people hear the word reverence, they often think about the clothes we wear, or whether or not we allow drinks in the worship center, or what kind of music we play. Reverence can get turned into legalism if we are not ultimately in awe of how great God is. Because this is a church where people come in super dressed up, and then the pastor shows up in a t-shirt, and we have people who bring their donuts and coffee into the room and then spill them and then go out and clean and come back in. But we, have, we want you to bring your donuts and coffee into the room. And we have other people who can never walk into a worship center with a cup of coffee because they feel like they're just turning against their grandmother and the things of the Lord. And like, it's so hard to hold those things together. Here's the key, though. When we, as a church, open the word of God and come before him in worship, are we in awe of how great he is? That's the question I want to answer. That's what I want to be true of us. Because we can have reverence, but, it, but there must be awe there. Flip it around the other way. People can have awe of God's greatness, but if there's not reverence, that awe just becomes emotionalism. It becomes very impersonal. These two things are meant to be drawn together. Why do we need reverence of God? Why do we need to live in ultimate respect and honor and fear of him? Why? Look at verse 29. For our God is a consuming fire. And you're like, whoa, that's an intense way to end the passage. Well, the author is drawing from Deuteronomy chapter 4 in a section that is about idolatry. That the people are serving other gods. They're making other gods. They're going after these things. They're worshiping. Here's the key. They're worshiping the created things instead of the creator. Think about Romans chapter 1 in your Bible. They're worshiping the created things. They're saying thank you. And how often do we hear this in our world? And let me not, I want to be very respectful in how I say this. Because I could, you could be in the room and this is what you believe and I want, to, I want to meet you with respect. But you live in a world where good things happen in someone's life. And who do they think? They think the universe or they think the energies, the positive vibes that are in the world, or they think they're lucky stars, or we, we think all these things that are created, and we miss giving reverence and awe to the one who created those things. That as the people of God, we worship the one who is a consuming fire, who comes to show his glory and his power and his holiness in this world. And so as the people created by God, we have to determine how are we going to respond to him. And so what I want to lay out in front of you for the next couple of moments, 
is a picture, something you can remember about how we respond to God. Okay? Here it is. It is tacos. All right? When you eat tacos, when you think about tacos, I want you to see this as a picture of what it means to respond to God's work in your life, a picture of what these verses are about. And you can say, oh, and you just talked about God being a consuming fire, and now you're talking about tacos. How those? Remember, what we're trying to think here is we are being drawn toward Mount Zion. We are being drawn toward God's grace, toward his joy, toward his peace. And what we have to determine is how are we, are going, to, how are we going to respond to that great God? With thankfulness. Everything we have is from God. And Christians should be the most thankful people on the planet. That you are the kind of person who in humility shows gratitude to people around you and you show thankfulness to God. And it's not a cheesy kind of thankfulness because it is a thankfulness that leads to awe. That you are overwhelmed by the things of God. If you love to read, if you like to read different types of things that come along, there's a book called Awe. A-W-E, by Paul David Tripp that came out a few years ago. Just a great book about worshiping the Lord, understanding what it is to live in awe before him, to be overwhelmed by how, by how great he is. Thankfulness and awe. When you see how great God is, what does that lead to in response? It leads to confession and repentance. That you say, God, I am nothing standing before your holiness. I confess my need for you. I confess my brokenness. I confess my sins. I confess that Jesus is Savior and Lord. And then in response to that, we're going to talk about this in weeks to come, we live in a way that's good for other people. We pray for other people. We ask God to work in our lives personally, ourselves. So what does it look like to live a life of prayer and praise, a life in response to God? Thankfulness, awe, confession, others, self. If you feel really uncomfortable praying, like you sit down to pray, you think, okay, I need to spend five minutes today praying. I don't normally pray. I got to work early. I need to spend five minutes praying. I just don't know what to pray about. God, this is what I'm thankful for. This is how awesome you are. This is what I need to confess before you. These are other people in my life I need to pray for. And God, I pray that you would work in my life. Thankfulness, awe, confession, others, self. That this is the work that God does in our life. He has worked. He has given us life and salvation and every good thing. And we live our entire lives responding to him in thankful worship. Which is exactly what we're going to do this morning. Your response to God's word this morning. Your response to a holy God who is a consuming fire. Your response to a God who brings an unshakable kingdom. Your response this morning for some of you would be, I've never responded in salvation. I've never trusted Jesus for salvation. If you're here this morning and you don't believe in God, you struggle to believe in what it means to follow Jesus, if you struggle with that, when good things happen in your life, who do you give thanks to? When hard things come into your life, who do you trust? Who do you turn to in those times? This morning, I would tell you, turn to Jesus that he has brought salvation, he has brought God's kingdom into your life, that you would turn and trust him for salvation. If you're here this morning and you just need someone to pray for you, 
over the next few minutes as we sing these songs, you're going to be able to come for prayer. There's going to be people, a part of the prayer team that will be spread around the room. We just want you to be able to respond in prayer. And maybe the best thing you can do for the next few minutes is just praise God. Just be grateful to him because of his work in your life. God, I want to praise you, and then I want to go out of this room to live for you. Would you bow your heads with me right now? God, we have come together this morning believing that you are God and we are not. You are the one who created all things. You are the one who spoke the world into existence, and God, you have spoken to us through the word. We came this morning to receive the word of God, to receive your work in our lives, to receive your salvation and forgiveness. And God, when we receive those things, the worst thing would be that we would not respond in gratitude, that we would just take those things and walk away, that we would take those things and direct our worship towards something of this world, our devotion towards something of this world. God, you are worthy of everything we have to give. And so we give our lives to you in prayer and praise. We devote our lives to you. And God, over the next few minutes, I pray that you would draw people to prayer. I pray that people would come here to the front and pray together as a family. God, I pray that they would reach out to someone around them. And God, I pray that they would be able to worship you in gratitude and reverence and awe for who you are and what you've done. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.